And my hope is to finish up the first seven verses this morning. We kind of slowed down in chapter 9 here as we're talking about the sanctity of life, God's view on the sacredness of life as he looks at us as his image bearers. So those of you who are able, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read the first seven verses, pray, and then we'll get into our text. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely... For your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. I'm sorry, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, that you have given us your word, that it might be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Lord, uh, that we would be a people, Lord, who would not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you and that you would direct our paths, Lord. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would use your word by your spirit, Lord, to set things right in our minds, Lord, to make our path straight. Lord, to turn those things which are upside down because of the fall, to turn them right side up, Lord, that, Lord, that we would be a people, Lord, who obey our King. We ask that you would do this to the glory of your name and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. You all remember back in the summer, there was a little four-year-old boy who fell into an an enclosure that was occupied by a 450-pound gorilla by the name of Harambi. And the zoo officials quickly determined that the gorilla needed to be shot in order to save that little boy. You remember the gorilla was beginning to drag the little boy around by his hand. And this, what I would consider to be a very logical and humane decision, sparked anger all across the country. People began to hold vigils, and they staged protests, and they signed petitions, and they began to vent on social media that the apes should not have been killed just to spare a little boy. Justice for Harambe became the marching slogan as thousands of people turned a dead ape into a soul, into a saint, and into a hero. We live in a day and age where human life is not regarded as sacred. Life is cheap. It has little value. When we, when we value the life of an ape above the life of a little boy, something's wrong. Something's messed up. And that's not what God intended. God values human life. God values human life above all other life. Why? And he tells us in verse 7, because we are made in his image. No other creatures are made in his image. 
Only us, humans, are made in his image. The animal world is not made in God's image. We can go back to Genesis 1. We've already covered that. But this is, what, this is the problem with sin. Sin has turned everything upside down. It's made what is right is wrong. You know, it's all, it's all backwards. You remember that not long after the, the fall, after Adam and Eve had sinned and they had had two children by then and Cain and Abel, and Cain murdered his brother Abel. And we have a picture there of what sin did into, in the mind and the heart of fallen man. Is, is it messed up his view, our view of, of human life? And Cain had no regard for human life, no regard for the sanctity of life. Well, that continued Violence and wickedness, we're told, prior to the flood, filled the earth. That was normal in that day. And so God judged the world, and he destroyed the inhabitants of that world, except for eight souls that were saved, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. But the flood didn't change man's heart. The flood didn't fix man's heart. There's only one fix for man's heart. And of course, we know what that fix is. And and that's Christ who went to the cross to die for you and to die for me to take the punishment that we deserve. But the flood didn't fix man's heart. And so then after the ark settles on dry ground and Noah's family emerged back in chapter 8, it's significant that when we get to chapter 9, after after. Noah take, comes out of the ark and he worships the Lord and he offers these sacrifices of these clean animals. That one of the first thing that, things that God affirms to Noah was the sanctity of human life. That was high on God's agenda. It was more important than anything else. It was really more important than where you're going to live, Noah, how you're going to make it in this new world. God wanted to give Noah a right view. He wanted, to, he wanted to establish a foundation for the proper view of human life. God wanted to give them his view on the sanctity and the sacredness of human life, that he values human life because we're his image bearers. And that's not something that was just important then in Noah's day, but it's also something that's important now. You see, because where there is no biblical conviction, we are doomed to follow the culture. And so God gives Noah a biblical conviction on his view, God's view on the sanctity of human life. And it's that same view that he gives us today through Genesis chapter 9. And if we don't have a biblical conviction on the sanctity of life, then you see, we begin to value animal life above human life. We begin to, as we talked about last week, we have a disregard for human life that says it's okay to have premarital sex and, and we get pregnant or, or it's okay even within a marriage to, you know, to, to you know, have conception take place and then we abort all these children. See, something's wrong in our thinking. We don't have God's view on the sanctity of life. And in these verses, as we talked about last week, 
we see that God values human life. And because God values human life, so must we. And in verses 1, 1 and 7, last week we talked about how human life is to be propagated to promote God's purpose on the earth, that we're to fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth and be willing to have children and to raise those children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Not that we can make them follow the Lord, but we're to point them to him, to help them see their need for the Savior so that we make disciples. Well, in verses 2 through 4, we're going to see that human life is to be prioritized over animal life. And then in verses 5 and 6, we're going to see that God ordains that human life is to be protected through capital punishment for murder. And so as we look at verses 2 through 4 right now, we see that God values human life above animal life. And the fear of you, says in verse 2, speaking to Noah, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. You know, the, the use of the word all there several times. I mean, this is all inclusive. All of the animal kingdom, we're told there, that God put a fear, a terror, or a dread into them. It would seem that after the flood, that whatever harmony that, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had enjoyed this perfect harmony with the animal world, right? Because there was no sin. But when sin came into the world, that, that harmony, that peace between humans and the animal world began to change. And we see that at this point now, God instills within the animal life this fear and this dread of man and all creatures. And, and what is the reason for that? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is for the protection of the animals who are no longer at peace with man. Their survival depended on this instinct that God put into them that when they see man run... But I also think it's for the protection of man. At this point, there's only eight humans and there's a ton of animals. Animals reproduce much more rapidly, most animals do, than humans. And their rapid multiplication might have quickly exterminated man, man's survival depending on. So I think it's two reasons. The animals, their survival depended upon this fear instinct, and I think man's protection depended upon them having this fear instinct that they wouldn't try to take out man. And you remember that there in the beginning after Adam and Eve and they had these two children, they had Cain and Abel, that, that Cain was a farmer. You remember that? And you remember that Abel was a shepherd. He was a keeper of the flocks. But Noah and his sons, they're hunters. And I'm sure this is good for those of you in here who like to hunt, but that's what they become. It says in verse 3, And every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, 
it's possible that man was a carnivore prior to the flood. We don't know that to be a fact. We do know that they had obviously killed some animals prior to the flood because that's how they clothed themselves, right? Now, whether they ate that meat or not, I don't know. But I do know here that in verse 3, that tells us that at this point, God gives them permission to hunt and to eat meat, which he hadn't given them previously. Maybe they had eaten the meat previously in disobedience. I don't know. We can only speculate on that. But here it's very clear that God gives them permission now to hunt and to eat meat. And it's very possible that man could have been a vegetarian prior to the flood. But my question is, why was there a change in diet? Why now does God say to eat meat? Well, Dr. Henry Morris, in his commentary, he speculates that perhaps the more harsh environment in this new world required the animal protein in meats for man's sustenance to a degree not normally available in other foods. And listen, if you read 20 commentaries, you're going to get 20 different answers to this question. The bottom line is, we don't know. But God did. He allowed them to eat meat. Whatever the reason may be at this point, it seems that our ancestors added meat to their diet. Now, I think what's important to note here is that God doesn't command that they eat meat. He doesn't say, now you have to eat meat. But he did give them freedom to enjoy a steak. They didn't have to. But this is a get-to. Now, some may choose to be a vegetarian or a vegan for health reasons. And I think that's fine. You can do that. You're free to choose to be a vegetarian, to be a vegan, to be an herbivore. (laughs) But but this is my point. Because it doesn't bother me one way or the other. And it shouldn't bother us as Christians if people choose to do that for health reasons. We don't judge one another for the things that we eat. But but let me make this point very clear, that if you choose to be a vegan or you choose to be a vegetarian, that it doesn't make you more spiritual than those who choose to eat meat. And that's important to take note because there are, there are factions within, the, uh, within those who would call themselves Christians who claim that we should only be vegetarians. And I think that's a clear misunderstanding of the Word of God. Jesus taught that, that, that all foods were permissible to eat. You remember he said in Mark chapter 7, he said, whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter the heart but it enters his stomach, and then it's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he says, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. It's not what goes into him. It's not what you eat. It's, it's, it's what comes out of our heart. That's where murders and adulteries and all these things come from. It's a heart problem. But, but God has not restricted our food choices. You remember in Paul's day, in Paul, the Apostle Paul's day, there were false teachers saying that if you really wanted to be spiritual, you should abstain from certain foods. And here was his response to that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. He says, they advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. He says, for everything 
created by God as good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. He's saying, you want to be a vegetarian? You can be a vegetarian. You want to be a vegan? You can be a vegan. You want to eat? You want to be a carnivore? Be a carnivore. He's, he doesn't have a, whatever, whatever you want to eat, as long as you receive it with gratefulness, God has permitted us to enjoy all foods. As a matter of fact, it is, it, it's, it's a kind of a blessing to be able to enjoy all these different varieties and gifts that he's given to us. So we're free to eat and enjoy all that God has graciously supplied. Do you remember uh, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter? You know, he had this real struggle with, uh, you know, he was a Jew and he had a real struggle with looking down upon Gentiles. He thought they were kind of less than him. And, you know, the Lord really tightened him up, didn't you? You remember he had this dream? It was about noontime. Maybe his, his stomach was grumbling. I don't know. And, and, and he has this dream, and this, this sheet comes down from heaven, and it's filled with all these different animals, both clean and unclean. You remember Jews only ate clean animals? And what did the Lord say to him in that dream? He said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? And what did Peter say? Oh, not so, Lord. No. And, and the Lord rebukes him. He says, listen, buddy, what I have called clean, don't you dare call unclean. And of course, not only was he saying that, that, that all animals you can, you can partake of and eat, whether they're clean or unclean at night, uh, it doesn't matter. And of course, the bigger picture of that was, Peter, I'm sending you out as an apostle to the Gentiles. I know you're struggling with them. I know you're having a problem with them. I know you see them as a less than you. You think that you're more spiritual because you eat these type of foods. And they don't but you're not. And you remember he sent him out to Cornelius and to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. And of course, Peter continued to struggle with that issue throughout his ministry. And Paul even had to rebuke him for it. Paul would eventually say this to the church of Corinth. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, or you want to mix it up and be an herbivore and a carnivore, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. One way doesn't make you more spiritual than the other. Carnivores will not be excluded from salvation or from the kingdom. And you may think I'm being facetious. I'm not being facetious. I'm being honest because there are some who believe that. God doesn't look at the vegan or the vegetarian and say, wow, that, that they are super spiritual. No, what he looks at us is he looks at us through the lens of Christ and what he's done for us and through his finished work on the cross. And he looks at us and says, that's my kid. Even though he's got steak in his teeth, that's my kid. <laughs> or maybe you got spinach hanging from it. It doesn't matter. But the point is that man was now permitted to eat meat. But with that permission also came a prohibition. There was a restriction, verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, before I get into this passage, I will say this. Here is another, and I'm just going to call them a cult, because I wouldn't even call this a fringe Christian group, but this is a cult that believe that they use this verse, this is their proof text for why they do not allow blood transfusions 
among their people. Now, this has nothing to do with human blood. This has everything to do with animals' blood. And, and there are, uh, you know, it's, it's just a false teaching. It's wrong. It's, it's an it's a improper view of the text to think that this somehow prohibits the transfusion of blood to save a life or to even donate blood to help give life. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that. But we're told here, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, humans are not to devour animals the way that animals devour one another, right? They attack them, they're on them while the, while the blood is still pulsating through the body of the, of the animal that they have just taken down, they devour it. In other words, we're not to act like animals. The animals must be slaughtered. That's the point he's making here. The, the animal should be slaughtered and the blood drained from it. And why is that? Couldn't we just simply say because it's gross not to? But there's a bigger reason for it. Leviticus chapter 17, the Lord tells us, he says, whatever man of the house of Israel, he's speaking to his covenant people here. God really has no big expectations. Unbelievers act like unbelievers, right? But he says, whatever man of the house of Israel... Well, let me take that back. He does have expectations because here he says, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. Why? For the life is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And he goes on to say, Whatever man of the children of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out his blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, its blood sustains its life. In other words, the life is in the blood. And the point here is that that God is making is that life must be respected. The taking of an animal's life, whether it be for a sacrifice for the children of Israel as they worship God and they sacrificed animals, the, the, the taking of an animal's life for a sacrifice or for a backyard barbecue is not to be taken lightly. It shouldn't be taken flippantly. And with every drop of blood that pours out of that animal, the worshiper, the hunter, the butcher is reminded that life comes from God and should be respected. Now, in our day and age, we're going to the grocery store, and it's all nice and packed and saran-wrapped and all that. We probably don't think a lot about that, but we probably should. That the taking of an animal's life to sustain our life is not a small thing. And with every drop that's poured out of that animal, we're reminded that that life comes from God. God gave that animal life. And that should be respected. Now, when it says here that we're to not eat meat with blood in it, does that mean that if you enjoy your steak or you enjoy your burger rare, that you are in sin? No. The blood has been drained. That, that, that animal has been slaughtered at the butcher house, at the, at the slaughter in the packing house. 
And matter of fact, to go beyond that, the red liquid that we often see in the package or maybe seeping out on your plate, very little of that, if any of it, is blood anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of water and what they call uh, myoglobin, which is some type of a protein found in most mammals, but it's not blood. So you're free, as gross as it is, to eat a rare steak and then all over your plate. I like mine medium, but you're free, and we won't judge you for that. I might not want to look at you while you eat it, but some people like it like that. But you're not in sin. Furthermore, we need to realize that because of sin, we can only have eternal life by the death of another. And that's the bigger picture here of what he's trying to communicate. Not just a respect and a reverence for the the life of that God gave this animal life and we're not to treat that flippantly, which is why I'm not a big fan of just going out and people just hunting for the sake of hunting just to have a trophy on their their wall. But if you're going to hunt, you know, or you're going to fish, you know, either catch and release or, or kill and eat, one of the two, you know, but it shouldn't be flippant. You know, God gave that animal life and it should be respected. But the bigger picture here is that sin is costly. You remember he tells them there in Leviticus chapter 17 that it's, the blood is given for them to make atonement on the altar. They were to take that blood there was nothing pretty about that. There was nothing sterilized about, about their worship of God. It, it was the worshiper's responsibility to lay their hands upon the head of that animal and to slit the throat of that lamb or goat or, or bull or whatever they were sacrificing. You didn't farm it out. You did it. You brought that, and then you captured that blood in a basin. And then that, that, that was poured out upon the altar. And that's to communicate to us that sin is costly. You see, for Israel, they poured out, they, they sacrificed, you know, bulls and goats. And the blood was poured out so that their sin could be covered for yet one more year. Year after year, bulls and, and goats and sheep were sacrificed over and over and over again. Sin was costly. And of course, that points to the greater cost, that Christ would come and he would be offered once because the blood of bulls and goats can't, though it might cover their sin for a year, it didn't remove their sin. But Christ comes and he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, his blood being perfect, being holy, being uh, unmixed with sin was the perfect sacrifice to remove and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the bigger picture here that's going on. I think another lesson we learn here is that God made animals to serve people, not vice versa. Certainly, we should protect animals from wanton destruction, you know, just cruel, malicious, inhumane killing. And and we should be kind to animals. This is not a good, strong area for me. I have two dogs, and, and I tolerate them. And I'll just be honest with you. It's a, it is an area of my heart that is not good. Proverbs 12.10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. I regard the life of them. They're still alive. <laughs> but I am not what you would call an animal lover. And, and, and that's just that's part of the fall in me that's affected 
but, but human life is to be prioritized above, above animal life. Animals are given to us to serve us, not the other way around. And you know, the animal rights movement, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's some things that are right there in, in you know, maybe in their foundation, uh, some parts of that movement that, that are right in their thinking because there is just this kind of a flippant regard for animal life. And we, you know, left to ourselves, humans, if we don't have some people standing up and screaming every now and then, we'll just, we'll just eliminate an entire species of animals, which I think is just wrong that we shouldn't do that. I mean, we're to have dominion over them, but we're not to just go out and flippantly just, uh, you know, pursue them for our own personal gain. But then there's a part of that movement that's, that's wrong because they, they value animal life above human life. That's the part that's been affected by the, by the fall. And they, they, they value saving the lives of animals above saving humans. And it's, to me, it's ironic that the, those who advocate you know, saving baby seals or whatever it may be are often the ones who, who, who advocate destroying human babies through abortion. That's messed up and that's the fall where we 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 put the value of of animal life above the value of human life and and i don't mean to disrespect a people but but the hindu religion with its sacred cows and i've been to india several years ago and i saw this their streets just filled with you know with uh you know these oxen that would walk down through there and these water buffalo and all that and and here these poor people are as skinny as a rail and they're starving to death because they've got no food but because they 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 regard these animals as sacred i mean even to the point where they let monkeys overrun their towns i mean it's just it's just it's just bizarre when God gave those very animals to feed hungry people. And of course, this is a result of sin and not having a biblical foundation. It's all turned upside down. And Paul said this in Romans chapter one, he said, here's the problem. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, God values human life above animal life. He gave those animals to sustain life. And he values us above the animals because we and we alone were made in his image. The animals weren't. That doesn't mean we have a disrespect for them, a disregard, or a flippant attitude toward them. Or we take their life lightly. And he's made that clear. The life is in the blood. we got to be careful with this. We need to have a respect and reverence for them. And we need to appreciate the gifts God's given to us. But, but we need to have a right view of animals. Well, from instructing Noah about the shedding of blood... The Lord proceeds to discuss an even far more important topic, the shedding of human blood. Notice what he says in verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Human life is so precious to God that when murder is committed, the death penalty is what he prescribes. Why is that? Because in verse 6 we're told, for in the image of God he made man. The murder of a person, the murder of a human, destroys 
an image bearer. It destroys a reflection of who God is. And, and it, what it says is that we don't value God's view on human life. It says that we have a flippant disregard for human life. Life is a gift from God. And to take a life is to take the place of God. Wasn't it Job who said in Job chapter 1, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? That's his prerogative, not yours, not mine. Which to me is another argument for why we shouldn't be proponents of euthanasia. But anyway, the mandate here even extends to the animal kingdom. Did you notice that? Surely from your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, verse 5, and from the hand of every beast I will require it. Remember we're told in Exodus, I think it's chapter 21, verse 28, that says if you own an ox and it gores a man to death, what are you supposed to do with that ox? You're supposed to stone it. You're supposed to kill it. Why? Because God values human life above animal life. You remember, it was just a a few months ago now, that there was a little two-year-old boy that was killed by an alligator while his family was vacationing at, uh, at a Disney World hotel. You remember that? And a horrible, tragic event. And, and what did they do? The Florida Fish and, and Wildlife, they killed six alligators that they believed were capable of the attack. You see, that was a right follow-through for the crime that had been committed there. It was really, and maybe unwittingly, they were following here verse, you know, Genesis chapter 9. But who has the responsibility to carry out the enforcement of capital punishment? Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now, God is not condoning vengeance here. He's not saying to an individual, hey, you know, obviously the person who's killed, they can't can't avenge their own death. But, But there was, as the Old Testament kind of progresses here, we see that it was the family's responsibility that, you know, that what they call the blood avenger. It was the family of the, of, the, of the victim who died. It was their responsibility to avenge the death, not revenge, but avenge the death and to, and to take out the person to, uh, you know, the, who had committed this capital crime. And, and as time went on, you remember that they developed within Israel what was called the uh, cities of refuge. There were six cities of refuge that were given so that the manslayer, though the person who had committed you know, a capital crime, murder, that he could flee to one of those cities and the elders there would protect him until they could do a right investigation to determine exactly what had happened. If they determined that he did, in fact, murder someone, then the death penalty was instituted. But here, God in chapter 9 is establishing human government. This is the foundation of human government. This is the very basis of human government. It's built upon the protection, the sanctity of human life. And his primary focus is to protect the life of God's image bearers and to punish those who have no regard for human life. We even, we even have, that's one of our response, primary responsibilities of our, of our government, isn't it? Is protect its citizens from enemies, both foreign and domestic, right? That's the foundation of Genesis 9 here, the foundation of human government. Well, let me ask you this question. So does the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, does that forbid the death penalty? Does that say then that we don't have a right then to execute uh, the person who takes a life? Keep in mind that this commandment 
It forbids the unjustified taking of a human life. Murder is a heart issue. Capital punishment is a justice issue. I mean, I don't think that anybody who executes a capital punishment upon, upon someone who has committed murder is, 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 is reveling in that idea. It is something that is, that is grave and it's serious, it's sobering, but it's certainly not a flippant response to human life. But it is a proper response to a blatant disregard for human life. Matter of fact, the New Testament upholds the authority of governments to impose the death penalty. In other words, this wasn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing also. Romans chapter 13, Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And, let the, and he goes on to say, But if you do evil, you should be afraid. For he who does not, for the governing authority, he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So, and this was, this was given by Paul to the church in Rome who was under the authority of Caesar Nero who was this cruel, evil man. So it doesn't, this is given regardless of the type of government, whether it's a good government or a bad government, whether it's a, a democracy or a dictatorship, the government, God gave government the authority to bear the sword on his behalf. For those who commit capital crimes worthy of death, the government should do that. And maybe you argue that, well, shouldn't we love our enemies and shouldn't we show compassion? The problem with that is you follow that logic out to the end. If it's about loving our enemies and 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 showing compassion. One, I think it it shows a a, a misunderstanding of uh, of our personal responsibility and our judicial responsibility. Secondly, I think I think it you know if you follow that out to a, to its logical conclusion, then then why would we punish any criminal? You wouldn't you know if if it's about loving your enemies and 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 having compassion, then and, and so therefore we're not going to to, to uh, administer the, the the death penalty. Well, then why give any penalty to any criminal, right? Let's just let them all off in the name of love your enemy and show compassion. But what about compassion? See, this is where it's messed up again. This is where our thinking gets messed up and it gets turned upside down when we think like that. What about compassion? What about love for the victims and their families? About those the crimes have been committed against? Why don't we put them, why don't we esteem them in the sanctity of human life above that of the criminal? What about affirming the sanctity of human life? And the point of all this is, is that God values, God values human life. And because God values human life, church, so must we. And we see the value that he placed upon human life. You want to know how much value he places on human life? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting. God paid the infinite price for those who are made in his image. He sent his son to the cross of Calvary. His blood, the life is in his blood. His blood was spilled 
for the sake of your soul, for the sake of my soul. The wages of sin is death, and Christ died in our place. Do you see the, the infinite price that he, he sent the best he had, which is his son and God in the flesh, and he comes to die on the cross of Calvary for the sake of those who are made in his image. He didn't do that for the animals. He did that for sinners like you and me. And so God values life. And so should we. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. We confess, Lord, that our we've been affected by the fall. And Lord, um, we need our thinking. We need our minds, Lord, reset. We need our minds turned right side up, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given your word and by your spirit that you do that. Lord, you help us to walk in your ways. Lord, you're holy and you want us to be holy. You want us to have right thinking. And so, Lord, may the truths of your word inform our lives. And Lord, may we see life, Lord, as you see it. And Lord, more importantly, we may see, Lord, the value that you put on us as humans, Lord, by sending your son to the cross of Calvary. Lord, that you might restore us as fallen, marred image bearers back into the perfect image that you made us in, Lord, holy and right. Lord, would your name be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.